the topic today is really a topic of great joy. Uh, we are in 1 John chapter 2. And I actually want to turn to chapter 4 to begin. 1 John chapter 4. And I want you to see this in verses 9 and 10 of 1 John 4. I know you know this passage uh, well. Uh, let's start in verse 7. Uh, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John's heading to chapter 4, but here in chapter 2, I want you to understand this is foundational in John's mind. The Father loves us. The Father loves us. The reality of what John is getting at is that we want to know that we have eternal life. 1 John 5.13 I've written these things so that you might know that you have eternal life. And doubt, lack of assurance, we've all experienced it. This is not something that only happens to weak Christians. This is something that happens to pastors and leaders and all of us because we live in a fallen world and we doubt. Sometimes we doubt that we truly are saved, that maybe we find ourselves in the midst of sin that we think, well, I would never forgive myself for this sin. Surely the Father, I've outsinned the grace of God. I've, I've just done it one too many times, and I would be sick of me. Surely He's sick of me. And so we doubt. Or perhaps we doubt that the Father really loves us because we look at the circumstances of life and the darkness won't lift and the sorrows are heavy and we think, has God abandoned me? So maybe this isn't true. Maybe, I, maybe I've been believing a lie. Maybe it's been a pipe dream and just empty hopes. And what we see John saying is, listen, God the Father is love. If you want to define love, you have to look to the Father. This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. And then John doesn't leave it in the abstract. He doesn't leave it in the theoretical. He says, you want to know how the Father loved you? He gave you His Son. He gave you His best. When you were at your worst. When I was at my worst. He gave us His Son to be the propitiation. It's a big word in chapter 4, verse 10. It's the word for satisfaction. Can all of your sins be forgiven? Can the Father's righteous character be satisfied? Yes. In his son. This is really good news. This, this should get you, you know, if we were a little less Baptist and a little more Pentecostal, you'd be shouting and jumping for joy. John Stott, the old Anglican uh, theologian, in talking about this, says the sending of God's son is both the revelation of his love, in other words, this is how God showed his love. And indeed, the very essence of love itself. This is love that He sent His Son. 
And it's not our love that's primary, Stott says, but God's. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us. Charles Spurgeon used to say, yeah, I am so glad that God loved me knowing everything about me because I wouldn't have chose me. And isn't that true? And that's what's so stunning about grace, I think, when we think about God's love for us. We think, I don't deserve it. Maybe I need to go through some, you know, uh, Christian form of penance. I just need to beat myself up enough and feel bad enough about my life before I could really accept that God gave me His Son. But that's not the gospel. See, that would be some sort of work. That would be some sort of preparation that you have to get in the right frame of mind or the right condition or feel sorry enough for your sins that finally God could save you. No, this is love. You didn't love God. I didn't love God. But He loved us and gave us His Son. And so just as a foundation, I want you to think about this as John writes chapter 2, as, he's, as we go through chapter 2. The Father loves you. He really does. And I'm going to turn over to John 17 before I get to chapter 2 because I want you to see how much He loves you. This is incredibly staggering to me. This verse, it really shocks me. Shocks my sensibilities. John 17, 23. He says, Jesus is praying in the upper room, and, and, and 23 is where I want to get to, but he says, verse 22, the glory that you've given me, Jesus is praying to the Father, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, so Jesus in us, and you and me, the Father and the Son, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now think about what Jesus... Jesus is saying this, not John. Jesus is saying the Father has loved us, those whom Jesus is praying for, the church, as much as He loves His Son. This is why it's shocking. Doesn't that almost sound like blasphemy to say, well, God the Father loves me as much as He loves Jesus? Like, I might be rebuked afterwards if you didn't read it here in this verse. But this is what Jesus is saying is that not only would you see it, the world would see it. People watching would see it and say, the God who created all things, the Father in heaven, He loves His people as much as He loves His Son. Jesus really wants you to know that the Father loves you. He does. And I'm convinced, after all of my studies and writing on the Father and doing all that work to get that degree, that we don't get it. Not like we should. Numerous reasons why we don't get it. We get it in our heads. We know the Father loves us. After all, we just sang it. We're going to sing it again during communion. How deep the Father's love for us. But where we don't get it is at the level of our heart instinctually. And, and the reason I know this is because when, when we doubt 
our assurance when we're weighed down by cares, when we think we've outsinned the grace of God, what we're tempted to think is, well, the Father doesn't still love me, or I wouldn't still love me in this condition. If you knew what I did, you wouldn't love me. How could God love me? But the Gospel says, oh, the Father has loved you. He's loved you with an infinite love, with an immeasurable love, And He's demonstrated it by giving His Son His best when you were at your worst. The Father loves us just as He loves the Son. Now let's go to 1 John 2. Just a little setting the stage. You can say amen if you want. I mean, it's okay. It's really good news. At least there's some happiness in the room. (laughs) amen i heard someone say amen lights you know they wanted the lights to respond because nobody else was responding i thought that was funny one time well jason mentioned last week at the beginning of chapter two uh or i'm sorry he mentioned last week uh at the uh the end of his sermon but it, it it there in chapter two that this movement from darkness to light that it's a gradual progression, that it's continuous. We're passing from the darkness into the light. It's not like a light switch where I can't see anything. I'm going to step on Legos because my kids left them out. Scary, filled with fear. So I switch the light on and immediate, I can see everything. That's not the picture in the verb as Jason mentioned. It's a, it's a continual moving from darkness to light. And John had been talking about this, this idea of moving from the darkness to light from the beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, that our fellowship, our, our communion is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He's going to go on to say in chapter 3 that, that the one born of God makes... Uh, No one born of God, rather, makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him and he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And so this idea of of gradual darkness to light, John mixes his metaphors and talks about being born again, growing. Uh, You could imagine this, this picture of our fellowship is we've been born again and we're like babies. And think about this, babies... They, they draw near to their parents. If we want to use the illustration of a father, they love their fathers. They know their fathers. They may not, I mean, they don't know what their dad does for work. They don't know the details of their dad's history or life, but they, they instinctually want to be held and hugged and kissed and affection shown that there's this capacity in us because we're made in the image of God that we, we love one another. Now, to... To walk in the light, as we saw before, doesn't mean that we're sinless. This was in chapter 1. But rather that we're honest about our sin to God, to others, to ourselves. To walk in the light means to be cleansed from sin. So we're passing from darkness to light in chapter 2 and we're walking in that light. And that's actually what's cleansing us from our sin. Uh, Let's read this together before I go on any further. I actually want to go back a little bit. He says, verse 7, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. There it is. And the true light is already 
shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes and now we're to what we're going to look at today i'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake i'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning i'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know Him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you're strong and the Word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we're going to look verses 12 to 17. I, I wanted to read to you um, the, a little bit of from last week because I want you to see what, what is going on here. Jason had talked last week about these conditional statements. He did a great job reminding us that there's both subjective assurance and objective assurance that's rooted in the finished work of Christ. That these conditional sentences are, are, are meant to show us that there are assurances that we in fact are in the light. That we're passing from darkness to light. And the first thing I want you to see in verses 12 to 14 is that the Apostle John switches uh, his pronouns that he's using so in those conditional sentences in verses uh, 9 and 10 and 11 he uses the word whoever do you see that there whoever does this whoever does that when he gets to verses 12 and 13 and 14 what does he change it to you i write to you why does he do this well i think what he's saying is what might be hypothetically true in these conditional sentences of whoever might profess faith at the beginning of the chapter, now he's speaking to this church. We don't know exactly what church it is. Maybe it's the one at Ephesus. Maybe it's a church at Asia Minor. But he's saying, I know you personally. And I'm writing to you and I'm convinced of something. And he, he has some strong language here. He's convinced that they know the Father through the finished work of Jesus, and it's in the power of the Spirit, which is implied. In fact, chapter 2, verse 21, he says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and no lie is of the truth. So we're not going to get to verse 21 uh, this week, but in the bigger context, he's saying, I know something that's true about you. Now, it might be that whoever says they love God, but they hate their neighbor, they're lying. But what's true of you here is your sins are forgiven. What's true of you, because I know you and I've seen your testimony, is that you've, you've, you have known Him who's from the beginning. That you know the Father. He has all this list. There's six of them. And, and what He gives them is Hebrew poetry, or at least a style of Hebrew poetry. And, and the style here is really great. It's divided into two parts. Do you see that where he goes, little children, fathers, young men? And then he repeats it again. Little children, fathers, young men. He actually uses 
two different verb tenses in the first set and the second set just to break them up, but he repeats these words. And, and I think what he's doing there when he says little children and fathers and young men is he's covering the whole lifespan of the Christian life metaphorically. You start off when you're born of God. He's talking about being born of God all throughout the book as little children. And then you grow into young men and then you grow into fathers. <coughs> and the second triplet or the, the second set reinforces and advances what the first set is saying in all of the because statements. And so this Hebrew poetry is called parallelism. And when you see it in the Psalms, what happens is you make a first statement and then you build on a second statement to, to reinforce it and go farther. Now, why is John doing this? Well, in the first century, everybody didn't have a Bible. They had to listen with their ears. It also was an oral culture. Not everybody was literate. And so he did this for ease of memorization. He does this poetry because he wants everybody to remember this, to memorize it. In fact, it becomes one of the high points of the letter that John wants his audiences to remember and repeat to themselves over and over and over again. I was uh, thinking of an example of this, trying to think of an example of this, but when I was in Spanish class in high school, I you know, I took four years of Spanish, and all I remember is our teacher would say, Repitan ustedes, la llave. And then everybody would repeat, la llave. It's key. I don't know why the word key is the one Spanish word I remember out of all the Spanish words. But I remember my teacher doing this where he would have us repeat so that we would memorize it, so that we would remember it. We use these mnemonic devices all of the time whether it's with music and we want to memorize what the spaces are and the, the lines are on a music scale, all cars eat gas or all cows eat grass or that type of thing. Or I remember going to science camp with one of my kids and they had a song to comfort the kids and it was bats eat bugs, they don't eat people. And they got the kids to sing this because all the kids were scared of the bats at science camp. And they, they wanted them to sing this song to remember bats don't eat people, they eat bugs. John's giving us this statement in a form of poetry. And the fact that he gives it to them this way, he's basically saying this is the main point. I want you to remember this, to repeat it to yourselves, to repeat it to one another. And... and What's fascinating is John wants to remember and repeat this. Well, what is it that's so important? It's not the poem itself. It's not the verb tenses. It's not the metaphor of children and fathers and young men. It's the because statements. And he's talking about the new covenant. Now, this is fascinating to me because I've never seen this before. As I was studying it this week, uh, Ron asked me a couple weeks ago about the use of little children in John. And I think I gave him a, a wimpy, weak answer about John being old by this time and perhaps he saw everybody like little children. And I went home and I kind of wasn't satisfied with that answer. I was thinking, that's pretty weak sauce. I mean, that's like... I don't know. Well, as I was studying this week, Ron, I, I was struck by this fact that, that John is talking about the reality of the new covenant. 
John connects it to little children and being born of God, but Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34 says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And we heard it in Hebrews 8, read today for the Scripture. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, yeah, Cademan put it up. Here's the, the comparison. So he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. What does the new covenant say? I will have forgiveness on their sins. Their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. Well, Jeremiah says, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. You've overcome the evil one, young men. And and we don't know exactly what he's getting at, but then when he repeats it and advances it, He says, you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Well, what did God say? I will write my law on their hearts in the new covenant. And so by writing God's law on our hearts, the law of God that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself, we overcome the evil one, the devil. And then he repeats, I I write to you little children because you know the Father. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Isn't that incredible? This, John is making this reference to the new covenant. And actually, I, I have a, a tentative thesis after study this week that the whole book of John and the whole basis of our assurance that he's getting at in 5.13 is that the reason we know we have Christian life, that we have eternal life, that we have this hope is because the new covenant is true. That what he's getting at about obeying God and keeping his commandments and knowing God and having fellowship with God and being born of God and having the word of God in our hearts, the whole book of John, all of the evidences of assurance are rooted in the new covenant. I, haven't, I can't prove that yet, but I'm hoping over the next couple months that maybe I'll have a really good thesis here. This just struck me. I'd never seen this before. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 1. Look at what he says here. He's gonna, so he's later in his argument, he's going to say, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. What's fascinating is that the one born of God is the one who's a little child throughout the book. Chapter 2.1, My little children, I write these things to you so you do not sin. Uh, chapter 2 later in verse 28 now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame chapter 3 verse 7 little children let no one deceive you whoever practices righteousness is righteous he goes on and on He, he uses little children throughout the book but i don't think he just means it as a pet name uh of like a grandpa talking to to kids He's using it to remind us that what the new covenant promised is that we would have regeneration and new life by the Spirit. We would be born again. So he's reminding them of the hope of the gospel and the new covenant, which is why I had Hebrews 8 read. So 
so the, the, the main thing I want you to, to get out of this, which I think John wants you to get out of this, is remember what the Father has given you in Christ. The greatest antidote to doubt is what I started with. Remembering the Father loves you and what He's given you in Jesus. And what we see in these verses is your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. You've known the Son. Now, I want you to see that because who is Him who's from the beginning? He said it twice. We have to go back to chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. So, Who's the one who's from the beginning? We might be tempted to think it's the Father in the context, but it's not from chapter 1. It's the Son, Jesus. So what's He saying? Oh, I'm writing to you because you know Him who's from the beginning. Jesus. The one who's the eternal life who was with the Father and who John touched and saw and felt and heard and walked three years with. So you know the Father and you know the Son. You have forgiveness of sins. You have fellowship with God. John says, this is why I'm writing these things to you. And I want to say it to you in a poem so that you'd remember it. Like, I before E except after C. And words with A like neighbor and... What was the... Uh, Ainsley's not in here. She knows it. But then Brian Regan makes that joke about... and. All throughout May, and you'll always be wrong no matter what you say about I before E except after C. Right? We learn these things so that we remember them. Well, imagine this, that you would learn this poem in such a way that you would say, oh yeah, I know what I have in Christ. My sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Well, what does that mean? For Jesus' name's sake, my sins are forgiven. He was my substitute. He died on a cross in my place to pay the penalty for my sin so that I could have life. And the Father's character is holy and righteous and He can't just you know, be the good old boy who just lets people into heaven because that's what He does. Like some you know, happy papa who just loves everybody. No, He's holy and righteous. And every sin has to be paid for somewhere. On us or on His Son. But our sins are forgiven for His name's sake. That I know Him who's from the beginning, Jesus. John 1, 1 John 1. I've overcome the evil one. Look what He says in chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and you've overcome them. Why? For He who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Now, He's going to go to the world here in just a second. But he says, listen, you've overcome the evil one. Why? Because the one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Well, who's the one who's in you? The Holy Spirit. He's going to mention that later. Who's written God's law on your heart? Who's residing in you? Who's given you new life so you're not alone? So you can overcome the evil one. I know the Father. Like I said, little children know their fathers. Daddy's home. That's one of my favorite things when they were little, right? Then they become teenagers. 
And it's like, "Uh uh-oh, dad's home. Then he says again, we know him who's from the beginning. Jesus, the good shepherd who knows his sheep and they know him and they hear his voice and they follow him and no one can ever snatch us out of his hand because we're loved. And the word of God abides in us and we've overcome the evil one, the new covenant law written on the heart. What an incredible reality. You know, spiritual warfare is the battlefield of the mind. It is the battlefield of the mind. It's not Ghostbusters. You know, it's not casting out demons and, and you know, capturing evil spirits. What it is is the battlefield of the mind remembering what's true and not believing the lie. And Satan, we're going to see, he wants to use the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life to get you to believe the lie. And we have to remember what's true in Jesus. And when we remember what's true in Jesus and what we have in Him, not by works, but by faith alone, we have assurance. And so the second thing I want you to see out of this passage in verses 15 to 17 is recognize what the world offers but cannot give. Remember who you are are in Christ, that the Father has loved you in Christ and given you everything, and recognize what the world offers but cannot give you. Not really. So John, look at what he does here. I love this because we talk about this over and over in our midweek gathering, and I know I've preached on it through the book of Galatians, that when we get to commands of Scripture... And we're going to get to commands right here in verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world. It's a command. Don't do it. But what is he rooted in? The motive of what he just talked about in verses 12 to 14. Everything we have in Jesus. Our identity in Christ. You're forgiven. You know the Father. You know Jesus, Him who's from the beginning. You have the law of God written on your hearts. You've overcome the evil one now. With all of that in mind, don't love the world. It's not some arbitrary law where God's like waiting with a fly swatter or a flip-flop ready to just smack you as soon as you do it. No, he's saying, don't do it because there's no joy in it. There's no life in it. There's no hope in it. It's darkness. In other words, what John is doing is saying live out of everything that you have in the new covenant in Jesus, not out of what the world offers, but cannot give. See, the world is an empty promise of a hype train. That's all it is. We know that, yet we fall into it all the time. It's <sighs> How many... You guys don't even have music CDs anymore. You don't, even, you, you don't even know the joy of having a whole album that you would play on repeat until you wear it out. The record would scratch. The tape would break. The CDs would get scratched. No. You just go to Apple Music and say one lyric that you heard on the radio. You, anyway, I'm, I'm messing with the younger people. But... How many of us could listen to the same song over and over and over for decades? No, it wears out, doesn't it? Even the best of art wears out. 
sin, the pleasures of sin, they don't last, do they? We don't have to live very long in this world to know that sometimes when we get exactly what we want, we really don't want it because it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't really bring us peace. It doesn't really bring us joy. Yeah, in the moment it does, and then we have a bunch of regret, right? I mean, it's, it's the candy bag at Halloween, right? I mean, we wanted to get so much candy, we were using pillowcases. Then you'd have that whole pillowcase of candy, And what kid in here, and that's all of you, at Halloween would be like, you know what, I'm just going to have three pieces tonight, and then I'll have candy all the way to Christmas. No, you would devour that whole bag except for, you know, the gross, yeah, Almond Joys and the gross peanut butter candies. (laughs) Somebody likes Almond Joys, they're mad at the Almond Joy illustration. Right? And then you would be like mad at your dad because he would come in there and start stealing the good candy. <laughs> Hits home, does it? John says, don't love the world or the things in the world. Verse 15. Let's, let's read it together. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, this world, when he's using the world, he's not talking about the good creation that God made. He's not talking about the people in the world. He's talking about this system that is opposed to God. The system of which the evil one that he was just talking about, Satan is the originator, the organizer, and the head. That Satan's fallen angels, his demons are his emissaries, and that the, those who are outside of Jesus are like subjects imprisoned in this world system. And the goal of the organization is to lead us in a life of total independence from God. It's the lie of the devil. In fact, chapter 5, verse 19, look at what he says there. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So let John give us the definition of world that he's talking about. And, and verse 15 is a little bit shocking, isn't it? John's using absolute language. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow, that's strong. John, you were just writing to give us assurance. Why in the world, in this first command that you say don't love the world, that then you scare us? And you say, if you love anything in the world, the love of the Father's not in you. Well, when we look at the whole epistle, he's been giving these two spheres of spiritual life and spiritual death, truth and falsehood, good and evil, light and darkness. And when he defines loving the world, if, if we were to read through the whole epistle together, we see that Loving the world is wanting to participate in it and enjoy it for what it is, a world in rebellion against God. So loving the world in John's definition is not enjoying good gifts that God has created. It's not the common grace that we all experience by living in 2023 in a world where we have you know, air conditioning and we have uh, cars and we have all of these blessings. That's not what he's talking about. 
He's talking about jumping headlong into a world system that is shaking its fist at God and saying, you're not the boss of me and I don't want anything to do with you. The world system does offer something. It offers a worldview that says you could have fulfillment and joy and meaning, but you don't need God. You can be the king of your life. But life without God is a tremendous void because we were made for Him and for His glory. Verse 16, all that's in the world, and again, he's defining the world for what it is. The desires or lusts of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father. So if you love those things, they're not from God. So again, he's not talking about common grace. James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. The air you breathe, the health you have, the life you enjoy, the relationships, those are good gifts from God. That's not what John's talking about. He's talking about this world system that's in opposition. The, the lust of the flesh, the system says, you can find satisfaction in fulfillment in life by fulfilling all of the desires of the flesh you can sex and drink and drugs and just find your enjoyment in that hedonism and you don't have to go very far not even to christians you could go to people in this world go to rock stars they're all old now because the best rock music was in the 70s and the 60s so they're all old and when you hear their interviews they're like man i wrecked my life with sex and drink and drugs and what do i do now i just want to love my kids and I want a quiet life. Galatians 5 describes those as they're manifested in our activity. The lust of the eyes, the tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real value. TikTok influencers is just the latest version of that. The magazines, the, the pictures, the, 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 the advertising of this world system says, man, you can find all of this enjoyment, but it's all substance. I mean, we got AI now. We don't even know if any of it's real anymore. The love of beauty. What it is is the love of beauty divorced from the love of God. Isn't that interesting that that we know what beauty is right we know what aesthetics are we 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 are uh, attracted to that because god is the one who's the very definition of beauty but when beauty's divorced from god it becomes a a lust of the eyes that says you can find meaning in it receive pleasure from it just in what you see i mean and and sometimes these are good things sports and recreation and art that give pleasure to ourselves but they become works of the flesh when they're divorced from God. And then the pride of life. This is arrogance relating to our external circumstances, our wealth, our rank, our dress. You know, I got my, I don't have any Air Jordans, but you know, I'm not a cool hip uh, young pastor. I don't have the skinny jeans and the Air Jordans uh, and the big fancy Rolex watch. That seems to be the, the new uh, thing. The desire... You know what it really is? Is the desire to outshine everyone else. Let me put my name in lights. Let me make much of me. <laughs> no, please don't. 
Uh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> uh, thank you, Siri. Uh, So what this world offers, look at verse 17. The world's passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. What John's arguing is, hey, the world offers a lot, but it can't make good. It can't make good on its offer. It can never satisfy. What the world offers is temporary, verse 17, John says. In contrast, what the Father offers through Jesus is eternal. He who does the will of God abides forever. The world cannot give you what you need. Only Jesus can give you what you need, which he says in verse 17 is eternal life. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world can't make good on its promises to give you what you want because your desires change. My desires change. And the world is passing away just like we heard last week from Jason, the darkness. Verse 8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. Now, now we're going to stop here, but John doesn't stop the flow of his argument. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Chapter 2, verse 25, this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Well, they're trying to deceive you because they're from the world. Chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father's given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we'll see Him as He is and have eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. See what John's getting at here? He's getting at this assurance that if you are believing in Jesus, that you've been born again by faith, that you have all of these things and the world cannot take them away. But there's a world system out there that's trying to woo you away. That's trying to convince you that the Father doesn't love you, that the Son's not for you, the Spirit isn't actually greater than the one who's in the world, and what you need to do is find your satisfaction and joy in this world system. Just forget God. Abandon His people. Think about yourself only. Put your name in lights and you'll be happy. Well, Jesus had a great illustration of this. Do you remember when He told the the parable about the kingdom of God? And He said, it's like a man who builds his house upon a rock. The winds blow and the rains come and the house stands. But the foolish man, he builds his house upon the sand. And I almost want to sing the little Sunday school song. Talk about mnemonic devices and memorization things. The wise man built his house upon You guys know that one? But when he said, yeah, you've got hand motions. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And what happens? We know what sand castles do. Man, some levee broke in Monterey County because of this rain. And now there's people evacuating. And we, we see in the news even the scare of like, man, all of those people who live on the ocean side, when uh, it's all going to fall into the ocean. Jesus says, if you're wise, you build your house upon the rock of the gospel, believing upon Jesus, being part of the kingdom of God, because it's going to last forever. 
And this is, this is the promise. This is the hope. So when, when, when John gives us the command not to love the world, he's not trying to be like a party killer. He's not trying to ruin your you know, groove, you know, throw off your groove like Emperor's New Groove. That's a little, you got that, Mikhail? <laughs> what he's trying to do is say, man, if you love the world, you're going to have regret because it's all passing away. It's like investing in crypto right now. It's all passing away. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's a future for it, but no, it doesn't seem like it right now, right? It's like speculative investing. Loving the world is a dead end. So I don't know what you came in here with in terms of what you're going through in life, the sin you're struggling with, the, where you're at with the Lord Jesus. But, but John is trying to tell you today, if you're a Christian, if you've believed the gospel, there's some things that you already have in the new covenant that you need to remember. Your sins are forgiven. The Father loves you and you know Him and have relationship with Him. And you know His Son. You've known Him who's from the beginning. And the Word of God has been written on your heart and, and the Spirit of God is indwelling you and so you overcome the evil one. Maybe you needed to hear that today because you're at the end of your strength. And you're looking at tomorrow and you're thinking, I don't even know how I'm going to get through it. Maybe you're here and you've been loving the world. You've been deciding you don't need God. And it, I mean, I don't know why you'd even be here because like, what is the benefit? Well, I know why you'd be here because the Lord has you here. And it's a divine appointment. And He's telling you to stop loving the things of the world and to flee to the only one who can give you joy and peace and eternal life. To believe upon Jesus so that all of these things would be yours. What a hope. Recognize that this world, it offers a ton, but it can never deliver. It can never give you what it offers. And so you want to have wisdom? You want to have a good investment? Believe upon the Lord Jesus so that you might have life, eternal life, and be part of His kingdom forever. Not a kingdom built on sand, but a kingdom built upon the rock. Father, thank You for this Word and our day today, the opportunity to gather Thank You for John writing this epistle. Revealing to us yet again that You love us. You are love. And You've demonstrated it by giving Your Son to us and for us and in our place. And not leaving us as orphans, but pouring out Your Spirit to, light, to write Your law in our hearts to cause us to draw near to You, to cry out, Abba, Father. Do a work in our church. Save those who don't know You. Bring them into the family. Convict us of sin that we have, that we've been holding on to, thinking it's going to bring us joy and happiness and satisfaction. It's not. May we recognize it for what it is. Remind us again of the Gospel and everything we have in Jesus, that that would be our foundation. That would be our hope. That would be our certainty and our assurance that the eternal life that You promised, You are going to give us. We're not going to be left. We're not going to be orphaned. We're not going to be abandoned. We love You because You first loved us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen.